0: Let's pray as we hear from the Lord this morning and in through the preaching of his word. Our holy God, would you help us today? Would you give us a view of what it looks like for your people to live together? And I recognize that there are many Cultural differences that are swarming around us. And it's easy to think. It's easy to focus. It's easy to gaze upon the differences among your people. Sadly, at the neglect of the great unity we have because of the gospel. And so would you be gracious? Would you help us see what a city of God looks like amidst the city of man? Would you allow us to be transformed by, the, by your truth? Your word is truth. And so may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. And may you help this church, a church that's marked by a lot of graces as it comes to community. But would you help us then grow all the more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No man is an island. To be Christian, if it means anything, means being gathered out of isolation into the corporate life of the body of Christ. Christian islands simply do not exist. In Christ, we belong together. According to scripture, a right relationship to God is is to a significant degree a right relationship to God's people. The quality of a Christian's relationship with fellow believers, particularly in the local church, is therefore one of the primary indicators of the quality of their relationship to the Lord. This was written in 1978 by English uh, professor Bruce Milne in his book, We Belong Together. And some 40 years later, these words still ring true. In the midst of the pandemic of 2020... Perhaps we have forgotten or lost sight of the fact that there is a rampant epidemic, an epidemic of loneliness that rages on. People surrounded by people and yet feeling more lonely and isolated than ever before. We live in one of the most connected times in all of world history. And yet as a society, we are more isolated than we've ever been in all of history. Cell phones and internet make it possible to talk with one another without even being present, to connect with the world with the touch of a button, and to text without even hearing a person's voice. Social media keeps us more up to speed on the happenings of literally thousands. And yet the end result with all of the technology that we have is that we're more lonely than ever before. And we're more inept at building genuine relationships with other people. One pastor noted that this is the rampant, or this is the fruit of rampant individualism in our country. The fruit of rampant individualism in our country is massive loneliness. People want real community, they want to be a part of a community that discovers and clings to identity to worth, and to value, and yet many people feel like that kind of community is simply unattainable. We desire this community, and yet we resist it. Because what if I put myself out there and I'm hurt? What if I get rejected? What if I'm betrayed? What if I'm ignored? What if I'm neglected? And here's the thing. We have thousands of years of church history. Thousands of years of human history to show us that the world simply doesn't have a time-tested answer to the yearning to belong. Good news this morning, friends. The church has the answer. The church has the answer. Jesus and his church are the only cure for the crisis of loneliness that marks the human heart. And yet the scandal of, of the hour is that sadly, no one outside of the church is looking to the church for a sense of belonging. And sadly, many within the church don't live pulling from this God-purchased gift everything that he's meant to provide for us in and through community. You see, what's the hope? The hope is that the picture that we see in the Bible, that that would become our reality. That the church would be, in the words of David Platt, a community of Christians who care for one another, who love one another, who host one another, who receive one another, who honor one another, who serve one another, who instruct one another, who forgive one another, motivate one another, build peace with one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, pray for one another, confess sin to one another, esteem one another. Edify one another, teach one another, show kindness to one another, give to one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, hurt with one another, and restore one another. All of these one another's combine together to paint a picture, not a people who come into a building looking for customized programs to meet their needs. No, they combine together to paint a picture of a people who have decided to lay their lives down in love for one another friends, the church has the answer because of the good news of Jesus Christ for the rampant massive loneliness that people feel and so the question this morning is how in the world can we ever find a community like that how do we become a community like that Well, the world has said and would think, well, what we do is we find people of shared interest. And we come together and we gather around the shared interest. Here's the problem Interests change. My interests were drastically different before I got married. And those interests changed once I had children. And jobs change and people relocate. And when you relocate and when circumstances change, then no one's there to root for the home team. The hobbies that you're doing now, guess what? There will come a day where you wake up and the hobby that you've been doing that's been so easy, you will wake up and go, huh, I don't have the knees to do that hobby anymore. And then what happens? Loneliness and isolation sets back in. You see, we need something deeper than changing circumstances. We need something deeper than just a superficial, common interest. If I was to ask you this morning, what's the essence of the Christian faith, how would you respond? What's the essence of the Christian faith? I think many in our day would say something to the effect of the Christian faith can be summarized like this. God loves me. God loves me. And while that is true, that is not the essence of the Christian faith. Because if God loves me is the essence of the Christian faith, faith, then who is the object of Christianity? Me. God does the acting, and I am the object. I am the object of his actions. Christianity then, it would be so easy to think that Christianity then is about me. That the church is about me. That community is about me. And so when I gather, I want to be the guest of honor every time. I want to be served. I want the community group that never has any problems. I want the friends that don't rub me the wrong way. I I want the non-annoying people to be the ones that are closest to me. But the essence of the Christian faith is not merely that God loves me, period. The essence of the Christian faith is that he loves me so that his glory would be made known to the nation's. He loves me for a purpose. He is the object. He is the center around which everything else in the Christian faith revolves. And so our only hope in finding the type of community that we we read about earlier is to find a community which is centered around the one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just say here, the regular diet at Covenant Life is that we're in a passage and we're drilling down and we're looking at one passage. And so we are veering off of the course of the diet this morning. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He was writing to a church that was in need of a lot of help in having the type of community in which people understood that It was better to to give than to receive. And in explaining his ministry to them, he makes this point, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Did Did you hear that? So those who have life because of the gospel would leverage their life not for themselves, but for the good of one another, for the good of others, for the glory of God. And so that's the, that's the aim, that's the picture. So when we talk about, we're, we're in a series right now, week two, of reminding ourselves, what is the mission of this church? And we've said it this way, that Covenant Life Church exists to display God's glory by making disciples who delight in God. That's what Kevin led us in last week, Psalm 100. Who delight in God, who live together in gospel-centered community, and who work for gospel renewal of Tampa Bay and the nations. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that second piece to that. So we're trying to make it sticky in our minds, and so we want to be a people who are disciples, who make disciples, who delight, live, and work. Delight in God, live live together, gospel-centered community, work for gospel renewal, Tampa Bay and the nations. And so as we speak of gospel-centered community, this then is the essence, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. The essence of the type of community that, that God, in and through Christ, has purchased for his people to experience the treasure trove of goodness and joy that he has for his people. It's through the church. And so as we speak of gospel-centered community, this is the essence. All of us have rebelled. All of us have sinned against. All of us have wronged God. The God who created us and the God whom we are accountable to. And so at the end of the day, our most fundamental problem is not whether or not I get along with someone on this earth, it's whether or not I am in right standing with my God who's in heaven. And there's coming a day when I breathe my last that I will be ushered into his presence and I will give an account for what I did here about this message that I'm about to share with you. And so it is a message of, of, of great significance, literally life and death hang in the balance. Every one of us are guilty and we're deserving of God's justice, his hatred, his wrath against sin. And that's not because he's a mean God, it's because he's a holy God. And the only thing that doesn't warrant his wrath is perfect righteousness. And therein lies the problem. There's not one of us in this room, there's not one of us walking around on this earth who has exactly what we need to stand before God and to not be judged for our sin. None of us have perfect righteousness. And the sweetest news of the gospel message, but God, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy, But God being overflowing in love, he sent Jesus to provide the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that's required to stand before him, not as an enemy, but as a family member, as a loved one, as one who belongs to God. We need perfect righteousness and Christ has come to provide perfect righteousness. He did it through his life. It's sinless. That's why his death is so confusing because perfect people don't die The worst of deaths. And you begin to understand, ah, his perfect righteousness led him then to a death that was substitutionary. He did it in the place of sinners. He didn't deserve to be there. Sinners deserve to be there. The story doesn't end there because Jesus doesn't merely do something for us. He invites us into a faith that is everlasting. It has everlasting life. And because of the resurrection on the third day, we can be sure that that sinless, that perfect righteousness, that substitutionary death, all of that accomplished something. He's no longer dead. He accomplished right standing for his people. And he rises triumphantly to say, if you are rolling with me, then we are going to eternity together. Where you get to unpack all of the joys for all of eternity of what it means to belong to me. The community that we long for here ought to be a foretaste of that one that is to come. And so the message of the Christian faith is that God loves you so that his glory would be made known throughout all of the earth. That love displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Every last one of us in this room are in need of that work. And the only way that we get that work is through faith in that work. It's not in your works. It's not in my works. We hang our works up realizing that we can never work our way into God's good graces. The only way to get there is to receive by faith the work of Jesus. And so I I picture the scenario. It's not even a theologically accurate scenario, but Peter's at the gate. I don't know why Peter's always at the gate, but he's there. And he says, why should I let you in? The only response for the Christian is you shouldn't. Look at my life. You shouldn't, but it's on the merits of another. It's on the work of Christ. And I have given all of my trust, all of my belief. I've reworked every priority that I have to say, I believe that the only way that I stand right before God is through Christ. My non-Christian friends this morning, your greatest need is not to learn through this sermon how to live better with other people your greatest need is to answer the question, how do you belong to God? How are you made right with God in light of your sin? The only way is to turn from your sin and to trust in the work of Jesus alone for forgiveness of sin. And when you do that, you're promised a community in the future that will be more glorious than you have ever imagined And you're given an opportunity to live in the foretaste of that community with other people. Where now, maybe for the first time in your life, you're free from having to insist on your ways because you have something that's been provided for you in Jesus. So you're free then to insist on your ways. You know what happens when you're free from insisting on your ways? You can then begin to give preference to others, and you can begin to love others. And all of the one another's, they don't become a list of homework, drudgery, duty. No, they actually become the gateway to joy because we're modeling the type of love we receive from our savior. And so my non-Christian friends, would you please turn from your sin this morning? And would you trust in Jesus alone to be made right with God? I just watched a funeral this past Friday of a 25-year-old girl your life is headed towards an expiration date. Don't get caught slipping. Don't presume that because, because you're only this old that you have this much longer to live. Now today would be the day of salvation. And so turn from your sin. Talk to anyone here about what that means. And to my Christian brothers and sisters, the gospel that I just described has purchased a community that you are meant to thrive in. And the only way that you and I will thrive in this community is when we begin to imitate and emulate the one who purchased it. Who didn't insist on his own rights, but laid them aside for the good of others. That actually seems like, well, if, if I insist on that, then what about me? What about me has been covered in the gospel? Jesus has got you. So you're now free to love other people and to serve other people and to put on display the good news of this news. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you after the longest intro ever to turn to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, Romans is in the new Testament. If you're not familiar with where that's at, there's no shame in looking in the table of contents, finding where it's at, going there. When I say chapter 12, 12 is going to be the big number at the top of the page. Those smaller numbers, we're going to really hang out in one verse today. So maybe that just made up for the long intro. One verse, it's going to be verse 10. That's going to be the smaller number under verse 12. Of all the passages to pick, I don't know why I went to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Because Romans gives us arguably the most glorious portrait of that gospel that I just shared. I mean, and Paul just unpacks it in a stunning way. And some people, maybe you're one of these people who think, oh, the gospel and all that doctrine stuff, that news about Jesus, that just really doesn't have much practical application. The book of Romans is just a, uh, man, an apologetic against that idea that doctrine isn't practical. It wells up worship in the heart. It helps us to delight in God, but it also sets the parameters for how we live in gospel-centered community. And so, just bear with me. I, I I want to understand, because of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I want to just paint the picture for what he's just covered in 11 verses or 11 chapters, so buckle up. Chapters one through three describes God's wrath and how God's wrath is set against sin and sinners. And then in Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26, which if if you are not a big memory a scripture memory person, can I just commend to you Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26, and going back through it again, I memorized this in college. I, I, I'm freshly aware that I need to, I need to keep Romans 3, 21 through 26 very close to me. So I would just commend the memorization of Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. But Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26 makes clear that the message of hope in the midst of God's wrath being set against sin and sinners is that his wrath was poured out on his son, Jesus. Instead of pouring it out on us, It was poured out on Christ so that by grace we can trust in Christ and we can be delivered from his wrath. We can be saved from sin and we can be brought into relationship with him. How in the world can that be? Well, Paul takes Romans 4 and 5 and he walks through to just make sure that we understand that that happens by faith and not by what we do. And then in Romans chapter 6, Paul makes clear that we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. And maybe you read Romans 6 and you think, well, that's discouraging. Because if I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to God, I still struggle with sin. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about we're going to struggle with sin as we journey to glory. All of that leads us to Romans chapter 8, which says, even in your struggle, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And not only that, but there's nothing that can separate you from his love if you belong to him. Romans chapter 9 uh, through 11, Paul makes clear, that his hold of us is secure because his hold of us has everything to do with his unmerited, unconditional love and favor that we have in salvation. And so in light of all of that, we get to Romans chapter 12, verse one, and Paul says, therefore. In light of everything that I have covered for the last 11 chapters, therefore. And what's he say? He says, therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In light of all of that, Paul's writing to these Christians, in light of what God has done in Christ, give him everything. Give him everything. He's worth and worthy of everything. There's actually no other response that would make sense in light of that good news. And then Romans chapter 12, verse two. How in the world do I give him everything? Well, you're you're shaped and you're molded, not by what the world says. Your mind is being renewed by the word of God. We become people who study God because we are people who want to delight in God. We are God-saturated people. That's the natural response to good news about Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I never made this connection, but in Romans chapter 12, verse three, Paul then says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Present yourselves. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then the very next verse, like when I read Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, I read it in this very individualistic pursuit. Like, I need, to, I need to present myself. I need to do this for myself. I need to renew myself. I need to be conformed, not be conformed. And so it's this fight. And I, I, it's so easy to read that as though I am in a vacuum somewhere just trying to do these things in response to 1 through 11. In the very next verse, Paul says, oh, but wait, don't think too highly of yourself because you need other people. So if we're gonna talk about what does it look like to respond rightly to the gospel, Paul in Romans chapter 12 connects those two things by saying respond rightly by living rightly. And the living rightly is in community with other people because you need others. And his application of being a living sacrifice and having our minds renewed is in part how we live together with others. And then he gets to verse 9, and the rest of the chapter is this description of the kind of life that is pleasing to God, verse 1, but it's it's a corporate life. It's a life with other Christians. We're only going to look at verse 10, but can I just commend you today, over lunch, sometime this week, read the rest of Romans chapter 12. And just allow the rest of Romans chapter 12, this this picture of a life together that Paul is painting, allow these things to just serve as a mirror to your own soul, to evaluate how you're doing at responding to the gospel by living in community. And so how faithful are you in living in this blood-bought community that Jesus has provided? It would be easy for members of this church, as we're talking about living in gospel-centered community, to only think about our community groups. And I just want to broaden that a little bit. Let's don't only focus on our community groups. I hope our community groups are just overflowing with this type of community. But this type of community should also mark other relationships outside of our community groups. And so we have the privilege of doing that in depth with a few people, but in breadth with a lot of people. And so three reminders from Romans chapter 10, verse 12 as to what it looks like. As we think about, okay, what does it mean to live together in gospel-centered community? Romans chapter t- 12, verse 10. I think I said 10-12. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 gives us three pictures. And for those of you that are really enthralled with uh, kind of, uh, what's, a li- acronym, no, alliteration? Acronym? Anyway, the first um, The first letter of all my points, spell (laughs) C-L-C. Number one, commit to one another faithfully. Commit to one another faithfully. Listen again to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted. Be devoted. Devotion necessitates commitment. And without one, you will lose the other. And do you know what the gospel loudly declares to us? It loudly declares that Christ was devoted to his people. It loudly declares. There's no questions about Christ's devotion to his people. And the scriptures often speak of the commitment the churches to have for one another because they are reflecting Christ's commitment to us. And so as we think about what it means to to be committed and be devoted, let's first go back to remember. Remember Christ's devotion and commitment to you. It doesn't end with you, but he was committed to you, devoted to you. If you're reading Paul's, uh, the book, the letter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you walk through, Paul is writing to a church that is so messed up. It would be. It, it would almost seem like it's the opposite of the type of community we would want to be, and yet he's laboring to just show them over and over what it looks like to live together in a way that honors God. And before he gets to the great end, you know, the wedding, the wedding chapter, First Corinthians thirteen. It's not the wedding chapter. It's a joke, not a funny one. But before he gets to the love chapter of First Corinthians thirteen. Paul spells out specific application for these churches, uh, for these Christians that are in Corinth. Verse 12, or chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. It's all about how we live together. We are a body made up of many members needing one another. And so 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't just sort of appear because Paul's thinking about virtues. 1 Corinthians 13 is needed because Paul's talking about community. How do we live together? How do we leverage what we have for the good of others and for the glory of God? And Paul says, we have to be thinking about love. But before he gets to love, 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about how we belong to one another. We're committed to one another. We're devoted to one another. Relationships within the local church. Let's be clear. Your only friendships should, it shouldn't be that your only friendships are your church Friendships. But there should be a primacy to those relationships. When you think of all of the one another's that we read and we, we see throughout Scripture, 50, either 56 or 59, depending on how you uh, look at three of those, those 56, 59 one another's in the New Testament. You can't do that with people that you regu- don't regularly see, that you're not regularly coming into contact with, that you're not committed to, devoted to. And so relationships within the local church are not to be exclusive, but they are to be primary in how we live out our corporate identity. You don't put the glory of God on display by living in community, staying really, really connected with people on social media that your neighbors and coworkers and, and other people never see. No, you put God's glory on display through being a, people being able to see how you live in community with others. And that requires a devotion, a commitment to one another. And this is a commitment that not just pastors are to make to the church, but the church is to make to one another. Every Christian is to make a commitment to other Christians in a local context. We've said it before. The Bible is explicitly implicit about this. Let that sit in. It's explicitly implicit. It's all over. The it's implied commitment and devotion to one another. And so every Christian has, has before them an opportunity to commit, to defend the gospel, to spread the gospel, to commit to one another, to do good to one another, to pursue one another when someone runs away, to remove one another when one is no longer walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. You simply don't do those things if you are not committed and devoted to one another doing the hard things for the good of an of another requires commitment to another you you and i don't naturally run into conversations that are difficult because we enjoy uh, maybe some of you do and there's other issues we can talk about don't just run in to have hard conversations because you love to have hard conversations you think the lord when he saved you he gave you a whistle and you're supposed to go around and and you just call out every But most of us, we avoid those things unless there's a commitment to see that other person grow in godliness and for us to do spiritual good to them. And the Bible doesn't hold out a devotion that only lasts for a few short weeks. It doesn't hold out a devotion and a commitment that that is there when it's easy and when it's exciting, but whenever feathers get ruffled and it gets hard, then we begin to, to retreat. No, in fact, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter five, when you talk about like loving people who love you and loving people who it's easy to love, Jesus says even the tax collectors, like even non-Christians love like that. What we're talking about is a community that's been formed and shaped and infused by the gospel. And you know what that does to fellowship and to community? It gives it a vein of steel. It doesn't break at conflict. It doesn't run because it's difficult. And I want to be clear, there are good reasons and biblical reasons to leave a church. But it's unbiblical for us to be a part of a church by name or in name only. Being a part of a church means we commit to one another. We're devoted to one another fundamentally because this is what Christ has modeled for us. This is what Christ has done to us. And so we read Acts chapter 2 and we see this beautiful picture of of community in the the early church. And we think, man, that's the kind of community that I want. But let's just be clear. That type of community isn't natural. That type of community is not immune to difficult circumstances. And that type of community is not easy in the midst of our cultural present conditions. Gospel-centered community is not community that's, that's perfect. It's a community who learns how to love in the midst of imperfection. And that requires commitment. It requires devotion. There are more issues to be divided over and to disagree with, perhaps more than ever before. And yet still Romans chapter 12, verse 10, informs those differences and disagreements. Cultural differences and hardships in the cultural moment, about your preferences about politics, your preferences about masks, your preferences about how we best engage and bringing about working for the good and social justice issues, those things don't inform how we read Romans chapter 12 verse 10. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 informs how we handle and how we act in light of those. And so our flesh and the world, it's going to insist, it's going to insist that, that we wait for others to commit to us and be devoted to us before we commit and be devoted to them. And yet the gospel says that because Jesus is devoted to you, then you are free to put yourself out there and to commit to others. And the Bible makes clear, you will fail, and you will be failed. You will hurt and you will be hurt. But the comforter of this gospel-centered community is that there is a comforter. There's a Holy Spirit who's been given to us to help us during our hurts. Who's with us when it's difficult. And so have you given up on this picture of what it looks like to live together in gospel-centered community? And perhaps if you say, maybe I have, begin by asking, are you devoted to a local church in this way? And it doesn't have to be this one but let it be one that's faithful to the gospel. I just exhort you in a few ways to, be, to show and to display our commitment to one another. Show up. Show up and participate when the body gets together. It's an indication that you're committed to the people. It's an indication that you're devoted to the people and you want their good. Commit your time, commit your money, commit your gifts, and watch your heart follow. Tim Keller said the greatest thing about this generation is that they long for biblical community. And one of the greatest weaknesses about this generation is that they're unwilling to sacrifice what's needed in order to get what they long for most. Commit yourself. Give yourself. Give what God has given you. Leverage that for the good of living in community. And so pursue other people first. Open your home often. During COVID, be creative as to what that looks like. Make the most of opportunities to devote and to invest into your church family. And some people think, well, I'm not gonna commit there until it feels like home. And in God's economy, it will never feel like home until you commit. It can't feel like home until you commit. And so a community centered on the gospel is a community that's committed to one another. But secondly, it's a community that loves one another genuinely. Love one another genuinely. So commit to one another faithfully. Number two, love one another genuinely. Look at the last half of verse 10. Be devoted, commit to one another in brotherly love. It's not surprising as Paul sort of transitions in Romans chapter 12 to talk about How what a life of virtue looks like, that the very first thing he mentions in verse nine is love. John chapter 13, verse 35 By all by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so again, in our day, we we love the church and we love God and we love tacos and we love animals and right, we love so many things because our understanding of love is primarily associated with a feeling or an emotion. But that's a diluted diluted version of what the Bible says love is. Most definitely, it includes our emotions. But love is a disposition of our heart that seeks the good of others through our words and through our works. It's a disposition of the heart that seeks the good of others through through our words and through our works. And so what that means is that you can genuinely love someone else even when you don't feel like it. And so let's be clear, God calls through his words, he calls Christians to love one another. And this isn't reserved just for the most sacred of relationships that you have. If you're married, you don't just have to love your spouse. Or if you have children, you have to love your children. Or if you have a a BFF, you don't have to just love your your close lifelong friend in this way. No, you're meant to love all Christians this way. And at some point you're going to go, I can't live like this. And then you remember, wait, he's not called you to live like this alone. He's equipped you with his Holy Spirit to live like this. And it's just helpful for us as we think about loving others, it would be easy for us to run straight to what do I need to do to love others? Where the New Testament, they keep putting pictures, not of what we do first, but remember what God has done for you. Remember how, remember how he's loved you? 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It's Not that we love God, but that he loved us. What would it look like if you and I lived as though we desperately believed that we have been loved by God in this kind of way? How would that affect the ways we relate to others? The cross is the eternal emblem of God's love to rebellious sinners, to make them children of the king. And so then the church then is the enduring emblem, of that love that's received and then spread to others. And so before we begin to talk about what it means to love others, let's walk it back a little bit. What does your love for others say about your belief about God's love for you? What does your lack of love for others reveal about your belief of God's love for you? What is your lack of love for those who take a different stance politically than you? What is your lack of love for those who have different preferences about the best way forward during a pandemic? What is your lack of love for those who take a different approach on how to address needed social justice reforms? What is your lack of love to others who disagree with you say about your belief of God's love for you? Oftentimes, we can want peace with others, and the unrest that we have with others is simply a symptom. It's simply a, a warning of the unrest and the lack of peace that we have in our convincing that we have been loved most by God. The word for genuine and sincere in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it's this idea of uh, being, it's, it's, in Latin, it means without wax, And so it's referring to this practice of using wax to hide cracks in bad pottery. What Paul's saying in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10 is that a loving person, a loving person doesn't hide his or her true nature. They're not trying to sort of put a front up for people that really isn't who they are. A loving person doesn't demand others to hide or encourage others to be hypocritical. And so if you're here this morning and you were living in community and you're thinking, I am just not, I'm struggling with being connected here. I'm not finding the kind of community that I would hope to find, I would just begin by saying, like, are you being honest with others about who you are and where you struggle? Because if we're going to love one another, it has to be without hypocrisy. And if there's a place where people can come to say, I am not who I need to be, and I'm more messed up than I care to admit but I'm willing to admit it to this people because I know this people long to love me so that my life would be leveraged for the glory of God. That would be the opposite of love. And this is why the gospel is the only hope for this kind of fear, because it deals with the insecurities of acceptance and true identity and approval, because it gives us something greater than this world can offer. We get approval and security and identity from God himself. And so the love that's you—the word for love that's used here—is the word that doesn't describe love between uh, family, love between spouse, love between friends. It's the love between God and His people. It's agape. It's a—it's a love for the unworthy. It's a love that stoops. It's a love that has no conditions. This is the type of selfless love that we are to have from one for, for one another. Do you know what that means? That means that if I'm going to love others the way that the Bible calls me to love others, then. Me doesn't consume my thoughts and actions. That's not love. Actually, it is love. It's self-love. Paul says that love isn't discriminating. Real love doesn't love everything. In fact, it hates what is evil and it clings to what is good. And so gospel-centered community then embraces the virtue of loving what, it's, what is good, and it fights the vices of evil. Which is why if you've not had a relationship with people in your covenant community about your sin, that's pretty unloving. And so I would encourage you, begin to open the pathways, pursue people, invite people in to tell them about where you're struggling. And so Christians, are you living in gospel-centered community with other Christians? Are you being honest with one another? Are you fighting sin in your life and in the lives of others? Are you having needed conversations with one another? And some people say, well, that's so intrusive. No, 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 it's so loving. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses nine and 10, that it is loving that we love what is good and we hate what is evil. And if I am engaging in evil things, it is unloving for you to not ask me about it. The gospel frees us to have these conversations because what we're concerned about is our church is not merely the size that she gets, but the purity that she radiates. She's meant to display the the glory of the God who has redeemed us. And that doesn't happen by taking the easy way that proves over time to be the more unloving way. Can more than one or two people in this church testify that you love them? You've made a commitment with other Christians in this church family to love one another. If you're not a member of this church, just say this is who we're hoping to become. Don't linger too long. You need community. You need brothers and sisters who will act in this way. And when, and when we don't, perhaps you're listening and you're going, I'm just not loving like this. The kindness of the Lord would lead you to repentance so that you can walk anew in grace and that we can embody the type of community that Christ died for and that we each long for. Last point. We commit to one another faithfully. We love one another genuinely. We consider one another continually. Consider one another continually. Look at the back half of verse 10. Give preference to one another in honor. I love how the ESV translated. Outdo one another in showing honor. I'm helped by uh, the author of Hebrews, Romans. Wow. The author of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, this idea of what does it mean to consider one another? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author encourages premeditation of encouragement. And so, it's I wake up and not just I'm waiting for opportunities to sort of come before me, and then I will think about how I can encourage. I'm considering, I'm dwelling on, I'm thinking about how I can stir others up and push them to love and good deeds. I prefer to honor others rather than be honored by others. How in the world do we consider others better than ourselves? Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, consider Christ Consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. Think about Jesus. Let our minds be occupied by him. Romans chapter 12 says, in light of, and with the other eye, one eye towards considering Jesus, the other eye, consider others. Consider others. When we are considering Christ and considering others, there's no place for us to consider self. And that's the best place to be. Being about God really does free us up. It frees us from having to be about us and it enables us to make much of Jesus by being about him and others. And that's what Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 13. I just encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and just see love is this, love does this, love. It considers others. It's patient with them because it, it doesn't insist that it's, it's too busy. It seeks understanding. And so how do we consider others? We just encourage them I and all of the one another's of scripture. I mean, just thinking about what the Bible calls us to, not in a crushing way, but in encouraging, this is what you get to live out. You get a foretaste of community around the throne. So 1 John 4.11, love one another. Romans 15.7, welcome one another. So again, you just not, not just what are the one another's, but when was the last time I've considered the, my church family in doing these one another's? 1 Corinthians 12.25, have the same care for one another. 1 Peter 4.10, serve one another. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, always seek to do good to one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. Hebrews 10.25, encouraging one another. Hebrews 10.24, stir up one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another. Ephesians 5.19, addressing one another in psalms and spiritual songs. Romans 15.5, live in harmony with one another. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven comfort one another. Romans 15, 14, instruct one another. Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Colossians 3, 13, bear with one another. Colossians 3, 13, forgive one another. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. Brothers and sisters, we should, it's not that we're lacking ideas on how to consider one another. They're everywhere. The New Testament is overflowing with them. And so are you willing to suffer for someone else's gain? Instead of you having the better yard and the better job and the better car and the better whatever, are you willing to leverage your life so that others can have the better? Are you meeting the needs of those around you? We just encourage you, make it a point to try to identify and meet needs around you as often as you can. That shows that we're considering one another. In conversations, how do you consider someone else in a conversation? Don't speak so much about yourself. Ask open-ended questions. You're bound to run into awkward silence. But even with a few moments of awkward silence, people will leave served and considered. If our conversations are less about how I can speak more, but more about how I can engage and pull you out to speak more. Because I want to consider you. I want to know you. Who are you regularly praying for? Whose burdens are you currently carrying? Where are you entering in in the hurts of others? Where are you rejoicing with others who are rejoicing? What kind of consideration do you hope others give to you? Matthew 22, give that to them. Love others the way you want to be loved. Commit to others the way you want to be committed to. Consider others the way you want to be committed to. Jesus didn't design the church to be a place where our dreams come true. Actually, the church is a people among which many of our dreams are disappointed and they die. And that's more of a grace to us than we often realize because so many of our dreams are much more selfish than we, selfish than we care to admit. Jesus designed the church to be a place where love comes true, where we lay our preferences aside out of a deference to others. It's meant to be this living laboratory of love, a place where there are so many opportunities, big and small, to lay down our lives for each other so that the love of Christ would become a public spectacle to the world that's watching. That's, when it comes to, that's why when it comes to the church in this age, the picture of community shouldn't be this, utopia, this utopian harmony. No, the picture of community in this age should be Golgotha. The hill upon which the cross sat on because in living life together, we will have to die every day. We will have to lay down our lives for each other every day because we are meant to be a gospel created, a community created by the gospel, but that's reflecting the gospel. And so I praise God for his grace in this church because there are evidences of his grace that literally littered my sermon prep all week of saying, I can see God's grace to our church in this way and in this way and in this way and in this way, way." but far be it from us that we ever grow complacent and think that somehow we've arrived. No way. May the Lord by his spirit help us grow in the days ahead because we do exist to display his glory by making disciples who delight in God who live together in gospel Center community and work for gospel renewal in Tampa Bay and the nations. This is our privilege, church. If you're not a part of this church, join us in that endeavor. If you are, renew afresh your commitment to this God in this community. Let's pray. God, as your word goes forth, we're reminded that it does accomplish its purposes. And so we're asking you to just unfold a bounty of fruitfulness in the days ahead from our time in your word. And so begin now. Show us now, remind us now how we ought to live. And so in this moment of silence, would you just recall to our mind, recall to our mind places that we need to grow And I pray no one leaves this room burdened or no one watching online leaves this room guilty and weighed down. No, I pray that we would make the connection that who we're called to be is indeed possible because of what Christ has done. And so may our worship of you, may it fan into flame our community. And so speak to us in this moment of silence, we pray.